Support for the show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. I am Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who thinks we should trust scientists when it comes to earthquakes, even though Fox says it's all quake news. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know were part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. And apologies for the very bad joke. Today in the red chair is John Mualem, a writer, one of my favorite writers. He's a writer-at-large at the New York Times Magazine, but he does all kinds of things. His most recent book is called This is Chance, The Shaking of an All-American City, A Voice That Held It Together. Uh, it's about the powerful earthquake. It, one of the most, it was the most powerful earthquake in American history, a 9.2 on the Richter scale that struck Anchorage, Alaska in 1964. It's also about a working mother and part-time reporter named Jeannie Chance who helped bring her community back together through the three days of radio broadcast she did then and more. We're here with John. John, welcome to Rico Deco. Thank you very much for having me, Kara. So this is a wonderful book. It's so interesting because right now we're consuming so much like disaster uh, news, essentially, which is coronavirus. But in this case, which you're writing about was a disaster. I found it a welcome relief from the current disaster to think about a 1964 disaster. Talk to me a little bit about how you came up with this and explain, set the story for people who don't know it. Because it's yeah. not a well-known earthquake, even though it was the one of the most uh, most significant earthquakes in the world. Yeah, I mean, that was actually the hook for me was, um, you know, I was, it was, this all started about seven years ago, uh, six or seven years ago. And, and you know, by the, at that point, I was in my mid-30s and I had never heard of the Great Alaska Earthquake of 1964. So right away, it was, um, you know, a little embarrassing maybe, but also sort of shocking that there was... I didn't know about it. Okay, well, thank you. I years older yeah. than you. Yeah, no, there's, there's, it's, it's not well known. And I think part of that had to do with that it happened in Alaska at a time when the state was seen as uh, kind of disconnected from the rest of America. Um, but I also just think that's the way history works sometimes. You know, some, some events are, are lodged in our memories and, and some don't. And I think that thought alone, um, you know, when I thought about all of the drama that had unfolded in this, in this quake and all of the stories that had played out, and to realize that they had all just uh, been, you know, erased or disappeared to a degree where, you know, a fairly well-read guy could go 30-something years without ever encountering any mention of it. Um, that got me thinking a lot about sort of how we tell stories and, and how history and works. And what survives. Talk, exactly. Talk about the earthquake. Say what happened so people yeah. who don't know. Yeah. So this the earthquake happened on, on Good Friday, 1964, and it was just as the sun was going down. And this was a time when, you know, Alaska had only been a state for five years. So in, in Anchorage, which was really the only community in Anchorage that probably people outside of Alaska would have 
you know, deign to consider a city, you know, this was at a pretty peculiar moment. You know, this was a, a moment when they were just starting to feel like they're a real place with something to offer. They had a couple big buildings like a J.C. Penney that they were very proud of. And now you get this earthquake, which, like you said, it, it was the most still is the most powerful one in American history. And, um, and, it, and it was also, you know, lasted four and a half minutes. So that's the first fact that just kind of bowled me over. Uh, you know, I've, I used to live in San Francisco, so I've been through earthquakes, but nothing like that. Um, and the damage it did was both incredibly destructive. You know, you had a, a kind of a new higher class neighborhood that just slid off a cliff uh, onto a shoreline 35 feet below. But it was also just weird. Uh, there was, you know, the main thoroughfare of Anchorage, 4th Avenue, which had all the shops and bars. Uh, you know, half the street just dropped about 12 feet below. Mm -hmm. So you had all these, these storefronts. are amazing. These yeah. Photos. Yeah. It's almost like it became like this underground city. It looks like a Disney attraction or something mm -hmm. where you, you know, all the cars are still parked at their parking meters, uh, but they're you know 12 feet below where they used to be. And then you look across the street and everything's totally fine. And I think that there was that kind of psychic disorientation, you know, that hit people during the quake where, you know, they, they were just so proud of this community. And then to see it just scrambled by these forces outside of their control, uh, really spoke to me. Can explain what a, what this nut level on the Richter scale means? Like compare it to the big San Francisco earthquake. Yeah. So the first thing I learned actually is that the uh, the Richter scale is, I guess, sort of obsolete. So we, I think, a lot of us still go around saying Richter scale, but it's we they, it's actually measured differently. Um, it's but we it just it's the moment magnitude. And yeah. So at the time, it was the most powerful earthquake ever ever recorded. And it's since been surpassed uh, by the Chilean earthquake. But you know, the the San Francisco earthquake was a, was a seven point nine, and as we, as we all know, that was you know these scales are are um, yeah. you know they increase exponentially. So um, so the power was one thing, but yeah, I'm just going to say again, like four and a half minutes. Like if you you may think you know what four and a half minutes feels like, but we are moving so fast, we really have no idea. The way I've been explaining it to people is like if you heard that Stevie Wonder song, I just called to say I love you. If you like hit play on that when the Earth started moving, then the song. <laughs> would end and you'd still be in an earthquake for like another right. 10 seconds. Right, right, right. So in terms of Alaska, this was a, this had just made a state. There's, there's a lot of sort of now can-do spirit. Like, again, like you said, they had a JCPenney. This was, they were, you know, moderning. They were being modern instead of this sort of frontier town. Um, so it was sort of this particular moment in the evolution of this, in this city and this state, really. Yeah, and it was and it was very tenuous, you know. Like there was an awareness that you know that a lot of what was happening in Anchorage had been because of this big boom after statehood, and there was you know some a lot of military jobs and military buildup, and there was a little bit of oil speculation, but there wasn't any real oil, you know, big oil strikes like we think of Alaska now. That was all in the future, and there was this sense that like people were looking around, just kind of wondering whether this experiment was going to work, you know, like they they had they had this momentum, and now they could feel it petering out. So, and yeah, I mean, that was, that was the feeling that I latched onto when I first started reading about the quake. Cause I think, you know, in, even before, you know, the, the pandemic, I think there were a lot of us who felt like, oh, you know, like life is a little more fragile than we, what we, than we thought, you know, some of these institutions we thought were permanent or not, you know, climate change. And so just as a human, you know, on so why, earth. Why this quake? What was the thing that interested you? Yeah. Well, for, I mean, that was, that was the start of it. And then very quickly, I, I came on this character of Jeannie Chance, who was this radio reporter you mentioned. Um, and to be totally honest, you know, as fascinated as I became with her, the, the initial impulse to, to dig into her story 
was just because I had read that, you know, in very dry terms, a, a description of her as having stayed uh, on duty at her radio station for 59 hours in the in the days after the quake and that her family had recorded the broadcast. So, you know, you get that journalism, like tingling yeah. feeling, you know, yeah, where, like, where you think they're going to get a, out here and do it. Do yeah. it like journalism. Well, no, no, I meant for, I meant for me. I, yeah. I meant that when you hear that there's these tapes somewhere out there that probably yeah. no one's heard right. um, and they're documenting this extraordinary experience. Well, the like, people heard it, correct? But go ahead, keep going. Oh, yeah. No, I, I just meant that all these years later, yeah. you know, I, yeah. I felt like, you know, someone who tells true stories, you need you need material. And mm-hmm. uh, I just imagined, you know, getting my hands on these things and, and set out to do it. And I, I didn't really realize that I'd, I'd come into situations like that a lot, where basically the entire process of reporting this book was, uh, you know, trying and failing and then finally finding some giant cache of material that everyone else had forgotten about. All right. So talk about that. So what she had done was after the quake, she broadcast and was and was a, sort of a lifeline for the community. Yeah. And radio was the critical way, especially up there, that people communicated. Yeah, I mean, right after the quake, you know, they had the radio stations were back with auxiliary power, you know, on generators and stuff. So that really became, I mean, it was just the same way we use social media now after a disaster or some, you know, school shooting or something. When you see these blips of information coming across, that was what the radio was doing. And Jeannie, you know, she was a woman in 1964 at a time when in broadcasting, you know, the expectation was she would be hosting a show about homemaking or, Mm -hmm. you know, recipe swaps and things like that. But she had forged herself into this news reporter, just roving all around Anchorage. She had this little mobile unit in her car she'd broadcast from. So after the quake hit, she just understood that it was her job to get to the center of the action and start reporting, you know, what what was going on. And that slowly, um, you know, became possible as uh, the engineers got the station going. And then very quickly, she was essentially just told by the police chief, like, we can't get on the air and tell people what they need to know. You just have to be kind of our public information officer. And she she wound up in this really central role of, of you know, directing resources around the city. You know, we need a medic here. We need uh, diesel fuel over here. But also passing these messages, which I found really, you know, moving, where people who were looking for their family would just come in and find her and ask them to say, you know, we're, we're looking for our kids. We haven't seen them. They're in an area where there's been a landslide. And she would relay these messages around the city, kind of amplifying uh, all of those people's voices uh, over the air. So it's a very different idea of what journalism is. And I think radio has been, sometimes been that. It's a very, you know, talk a little bit about the medium of radio and what it does. And again, you're in an area where radio, there's so much twitchier and so noisy now. There's so many different mediums. But radio has this sort of clarion call among everybody. Everybody can get it. Everyone who has a radio can get it. And it's often used in emergencies, including the San Francisco earthquake, I remember. You know, radio was the most dependable way of getting a lot of information. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's in some ways, it's a really nimble, you know, platform, and it can get up and going really quickly, and people are able to hear it. I mean, less so now, because how many of us have, like, transistor radios, you know, right. ready? But, I do. Okay, good. <laughs> me too. It's I was listening to one the other day. Yeah. It's very pleasing. Maybe it is, it's pleasing yeah. pleasing to me. Yeah, I always listen to baseball games on the radio. I prefer it to TV. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah. My so grandfather that, had when he listened to, he had it at his ear. He just listened to baseball games. Yeah, that's like a classic uh, dad move, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think especially in Alaska, you know, this is the time. There were a couple TV stations just getting up and running in, in Alaska, but but uh, there were people who just didn't have access to any other form of communication. So what Jeannie was doing with these messages, it was actually kind of adapted from something that the station did all the time. You know, they would have this thing they called the muckluck telegraph, where if you were in Anchorage and you wanted to get a message to someone, you know, out in the bush who didn't have phone service, you could just call up the radio station. They'd say, OK, you know, uh, you know, Louie, if you're listening, uh, you know, Jim has your washing machine. It, it came off the boat. Come down to Anchorage and get it. 
So at a, after this disaster, when the city itself is kind of reduced to this, you know, wilderness, when it when it itself is like back to kind of, you know, uh, almost like living in the backcountry because there's no power, there's no phones, uh, radio just kind of picked up the slack and did that. All right. She had provided this unifying force and ran all over the place. And you got access to these tapes, that which are analog their tapes, but they're in a box. Tell that story about how you did this. Yeah, well, so um, I eventually found Jeannie's uh, daughter who lives in, in Juneau. And, uh, you know, it was like, it was one of the weirdest phone calls I've ever had as a, as a journalist because I called her up and I said, you know, I just came across the mention of your mom. I'm thinking about writing something about the quake. Do you have any of her things around? And, and she said, you know, I've been waiting for someone to do this. She had, so Jeannie had died in the 90s, but she had, had you know, she was a pack rat. And she saved everything thinking that she was going to, um, you know, write her memoir one day. And she got dementia very suddenly and was never able to do that. So, so her daughter, Jan, had just been holding on to these, you know, I think it was 38 or 39 boxes of material. And I'm talking about everything from, you know, a lock of Jeannie's baby hair to, uh, you know, journal entries from some of the last, you know, years of her life when she could really, um, you know, write anything down. And uh, Jan had actually moved across the country, moved from Alaska to upstate New York and back again, lugging all these boxes because she knew that she was, you know, had this obligation to do something with it, but it was just too much work and too painful. So yeah, I spent a lot of time going through these things. And among them were many of these, um, these reel-to-reel tapes. Um, some were also at the University of Alaska. And you know, I, it was actually a bit of a chore to figure out how to even listen to them. I had to find, you know, the right person because they're very fragile at that time. But yeah, what what I heard on those tapes was, um, you know, hours of these broadcasts uh, from after the quake, uh, and then also other broadcasts just from normal life in Anchorage, which really kind of put across the texture of of what life was like in in a time when I think it's kind of hard for us to imagine what it was like to live in a community like that. So what was your feeling listening to them? How did you find someone to listen to them? Because these are, I mean, I remember going to the Smithsonian and helping them out a little bit because they had a lot of early internet stuff. They couldn't play CD-ROMs and different things and they needed devices and they wanted some advice on how to do it. I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't know how you're ever going to play it 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now to say nothing of 100, but to understand what was happening around, say, CD-ROMs. Yeah, I got that sense that it's actually a bit of a problem for archivists right now. I don't know too much about it, but yeah, I mean, for example, the the archive in at the University of Alaska in Anchorage, they had tons of reel to reels, and they literally had no way to listen to them, right? So they had them all cataloged, but you didn't know what was on them. And so yeah, I, I basically just had to do some research. I think I got a recommendation from a friend eventually of a of a engineer in Seattle who who um, the archive agreed to mail him some of the tapes, and I just paid to have them digitized. So now they're part of the collection there as well. Um, but it was like so exciting, you know, to get some of these files, you know, you'd be waiting for weeks or months and then um, get these files. And the same thing with some of Jeannie's diaries, like the last diaries, you know, she was writing on like a real primitive Mac computer. And, uh, and so to get those, you know, those like raunchy text documents with all the, you know, weird characters embedded in them and stuff and fish through those. It was great. It was like such a joy just as, as a reporter to get to, to comb through that. So, so I want to get in the next section, talk about who else, you know, what else you want to tell about the story of a destruction of a society and then rebuilding it because it's kind of pertinent to today, unfortunately. Um, but when you, when you think about that kind of journalist, you know, in terms of sort of the, how would you describe that kind of journalist? Because media has changed so drastically. This was a journalist that people trusted and loved and and had it really did was providing on the ground journalism in a way that's very different than today. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think she had the advantage in you know inside the disaster where she was already someone that was a familiar presence to the city. Like she was sort of part of the the city, you know. And um, and you know, to, I don't want to 
make it too, you know, idealized. She was also, you know, dealing with a lot of sexism. And there were a lot of people who thought she was just kind of a pushy, you know, uppity person who, right. who they, you know, was was overstepping her bounds. But I think in general, you know, with the, what I heard that was most meaningful to me um, from a woman who, you know, remembers listening to, to Jeannie that night was that this is a situation where so much is suddenly jumbled in life. And, uh, you know, even just to know it was an earthquake took people some time. There was an assumption maybe this was nuclear war at first, right? And people were isolated. They were thrown, you know, they're, they're, one guy literally remembered being, you know, finding himself at the bottom of a hole and thinking, you know, maybe I'm the last man. Um, so just to like turn on the radio and hear a person talking to you and a person whose voice you recognized was incredibly stabilizing for people and for her to be giving you information that was not comforting information. You know, it was mm-hmm. it was really um, scary information. It was this building fell down, these roads are impassable, we have no contact with the outside world. But this, uh, this woman uh, who remembered listening said, you know, in those situations, information is a form of comfort. And that really stuck at me. And I feel like, you know, it, it's even more meaningful now, like living through what we're, we're living through. Like you can, you can just see that I think so much of the, the kind of dread that I'm feeling is, is just yep. from, I would like one Information person to be telling. Information is not comfort. Well, it, it, but I feel like well, I would we're like- We're going to talk about that. Yeah, we get back. Yeah, Let's talk yeah. about that. What has happened to information? We're here with John Muellum. His new book is called, This is Chance, The Shaking of an All-American City, A Voice That Held It Together. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. We're here with John Muallam. His new book is called This is Chance. It's about the Great Alaska Earthquake, which happened in 1964, and a reporter that covered it named uh, Jeannie Chance. We were just talking about information as comfort. What an interesting thing, because here she was, this reporter, reporting on uh, the quake and getting people pertinent and important information. Fast forward to today, to this virus and this crisis, but you could say that about almost anything, whether it's a political crisis. Information is not comfort anymore. 
it is, or maybe you think it is. I don't know. What do you, what is your? I yeah, don't think I, it is. I think it's discomfort, well, not in a good way. Yeah, I mean, I have both experiences. You know, let's let's be honest. But you know, the the more I've thought about this, because because I have been trying to think about, you know, wh- how, how could it feel so different now? And and I think that the difference, I mean, I can only speak for myself, you know, weirdly, like I'm, uh, because my kids are home and I was supposed to be on a book tour right now, I'm actually consuming less information than I probably would right. be in normal mm-hmm. life because I'm chasing after kids all day. Um, right. But but the way that I'm absorbing that information, you know, admittedly is like largely through Twitter. And so to me, it's not the information that's discomforting. I think that what's discomforting for me and what's disorienting for me is this kind of slapdash, you know, like details flying every which way, uh, not really understanding the integrity of that of those facts, seeing people arguing uh, all the time. So I, I think it's the way in which I'm absorbing information, which is actually uh, destabilizing. Whereas, you know, what what Jeannie was doing in large part was, um, you know, you had a situation where where real life had become Twitter. You know, someone on in one part of Anchorage knew what had happened right around them, but they didn't know what else was happening. And they didn't know if they could trust what they heard. And so you had someone like Jeannie and the other broadcasters working who were able to synthesize that and give it um, a story, you know, put put those facts into a story and give it some sense of narration. And eventually her voice was was one of the major ones that left Anchorage on, on the radio and got, you know, relayed elsewhere throughout the United States. And that was her role there too. Um, so you had these very... Um, you know, discomforting spasms of of facts, of of alleged facts that no one could really um, do much with and didn't know how to feel about. And then to have them crystallized into, you know, a, a narrative, I think is the piece that a lot of us are missing right now. So how do you change that? I mean, is that possibly changed? I mean, compare and contrast the two. They were, this was one single voice that, like you said, told a story. Here's I'm pulling off bits and pieces, and now we have sort of a disaggregated uh, storytelling system. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a flaw, and I think we've seen that you know in not just with the pandemic. I mean, that's just the condition of modern life in in some ways, right? And it's a problem mm-hmm. of scale too. You know, like you can't have um, you know alternative facts in a in a community of a small a community the size of Anchorage at least for very long because eventually they're going to bump up against. The, the real facts and, and things will kind of be sorted out. So I don't know, it's, it's something that I, you know, as a journalist, but also just as a citizen, I spend a lot of time worrying about. I don't know that I have a solution, but I do think that it's when you see it in a, in a more contained way in a situation like the earthquake, you can recognize um, the value of having a central trusted voice that mm-hmm. can explain things that will seem simple and that will trust the public to understand them and the way and people no can rise to that occasion. Yeah, because I think it's, you know, the, another thread of the book was sort of, um, you know, there's some sociologists that show up in Anchorage the day after the quake from a, a place called the Disaster Research Center. And they're mm-hmm. funded by the military. I love this idea. Explain who yeah, the yeah, disaster. The, so these people go in after disasters and just assess the disaster. For yeah, they're, they're still going. Right? Um, this was this yeah. was really their first big trip, though. They had just been founded and they were funded by the military. And they said, great, a disaster. Yeah, exactly. They they, they weren't quite ready for prime time, but they, they said, you know, if we're going to study these things, we got to get up there right now. So they, they And the use of them to explain for people to understand is to be able to prevent them in the future or to have to, to mitigate when something's happened. Well, yeah, I mean, it was all funded by the military. So the, the use was actually, the military just wanted to figure out, you know, when there's a nuclear attack, this is the Cold War, when, when the Soviets bomb us with, with nuclear weapons, Weapons, 
there's going to the assumption was there's going to be chaos and you know the the term that I found in one report was hysterical neurosis among the civilian population <laughs> right so they wanted to get a read on what that's going to look like so that they could prepare for it and and the only way you can do that is with some kind of proxy and they decided it would be natural disasters so these you know kind of um you know egg-headed social scientists show up in Alaska expecting to be documenting the unraveling of society and what they find really is the exact opposite that people are being completely resourceful and level-headed and working together to solve problems in all kinds of different ways. And this is really a major thread of the book because it's something that Jeannie noticed herself. But where I was going with this is just that, you know, Jeannie showed up at the police station right after the quake with her radio unit in her car, thinking that her job was to get that equipment to someone in charge, you know, quote unquote, a man, and even in her own, you know, expectations, it was going to be some man in charge who could, um, you know, tell the city what it needed to know. She didn't expect that she had a role to play. And she very quickly discovered that this was a situation where responsibility was going to be falling on her shoulders and other people's shoulders, and that the public was actually not a problem that needed to be contained, but a part of the solution. And I think that when you when you go into disasters with that assumption, uh, you communicate with the public in a completely different way and you have better um, results. And that's what these sociologists, you know, they've gone on to study disasters around the world since uh, 1964 in Anchorage, and they just keep finding the same things again and again, you know, just what they saw in Anchorage, that there are ways that communities come together to rise to meet these situations um, that goes against kind of all of our pessimistic assumptions of, of how badly um, those, those uh, disruptions will go. Although there are ways not to deal with them, correct? I mean, you can look at like these daily briefings are not comforting. They are not unifying. They are disturbing on on many levels. And actually, people tune out. I've tuned out of them. It's just why bother? They're not. They're information free. Yeah. Thing. I think information, like real information, is what people want. Like if I could hear real information on testing, I would listen. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that it's also it's a matter of trust and credibility, right? You're not you know, not only are you going to stop tuning in when you realize, um, you know, there's no credibility to this thing, but it, you know, for me, it also just makes you suspicious of, of now you're hearing things and, you, and you're, you're skeptical about them. And I think that's, um, I mean, I think the sociologists would, would tell you the same thing is that that's such a key piece of managing these situations is to have that kind of relationship between, you know, so-called authority figures and, and the rest of the population where there's a, a trust uh, that goes both ways. Right. That isn't weighted one way or the other. Now, let's talk about the other characters in the book and talk a little bit about more about the reaction of what this did and then what how they brought it together and made it turned it into an opportunity, although a disaster is a disaster at its very heart. Yeah, I mean, really, in some ways, the town of Anchorage became the main character of, of the book. You know, it was like such a, the delight of the all the research was just discovering all these other characters. And and really, they all, there were so many storylines that, that just fit in with just what I was saying. You know, people who, even to their own surprise, rose to these unexpected positions where they were able to help. So one, one guy in the book, for example, is this guy, Bill Davis, who was a psychology professor at the local, you know, tiny little college in, in Anchorage. But he was also a, a mountaineer in his spare time. And he had this group of guys that would get together and kind of practice landslide rescue techniques and climbing just to keep their skills sharp and kind of spend the day hanging out. So after the quake, uh, you know, he shows up. The, the quake happened just as the sun was going down. So the, that whole first night, you know, and the, the book sort of tells the story of these first three days. So that first night is just utter confusion. You know, no one's even able to, to kind of see what the situation is. And they're waiting for sunrise to, to really make any real action plan. And he, this guy, Bill, walks in like many people did to just sort of volunteer and see what he can do to help on Saturday morning and discovers that the fire department, which was supposed to be doing a search and rescue mission, 
uh, you know, just kind of fell down and wasn't able to mount any kind of real systematic search. And he gets put in charge of it just because mm -hmm. by virtue of knowing, you know, because now uh, basically he knows landslides, more about, yeah. uh, you know, rescuing people from rubble is similar to rescuing people from a landslide. And for the next several days, he runs this uh, rescue operation with a bunch of these mountaineers and other volunteers. And just wherever he looked in Anchorage, there was, you know, there are examples like that where there were these well-organized um, ad hoc organizations that that stepped up, but also just... Right after the shaking stops, you know, ordinary people uh, leaping in to dig people out of rubble outside buildings or search through ruins for survivors or take in their neighbors, you know, uh, feed people. Uh, I mean, you name it, like everything that was that needed to be done was being done with this impulsive, um, you know, instantaneousness by by ordinary people. I, in the book, I call it like a civic immune response because that was really what it, huh. what it felt like, you know, that right. um, just a reaction to the disturbance came this reaction to kind of seize on it from all angles and and start to set things right. Yeah, it's interesting because I think there's, a, in this COVID thing, there's a lot of civic immune reaction. There's been a lot of amazing work by healthcare workers and uh, regular people. The problem is you hear all the other stories now. You probably didn't know the bad things that happened. You know what I mean? It's a really, or maybe there's more of them or something else, but you get, you know, you'll get the picture of the woman screaming at the healthcare worker today. I think there was one that went all over social media. It's so disturbing. Yeah. You yeah. know, saying go back to China to a healthcare worker who's probably going to end up intubating this woman when she gets uh, COVID-19. So that, 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 that to me, that the, the too much information can also be problematic. Well, again, I mean, we're just saying information, but we're not mm -hmm. talking about, I mean, that that woman is right, obviously story. dealing with a set of information that that should not have yeah. been, you know, promulgated in yes. the first place, especially right. by a position, you know, from the president. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, I, I just, I think it's, um, you know, people are going to react in the ways that they feel is most appropriate and they feel is most right. productive based on what they have. And the problem right now is that we don't have a, a good foundation for people to know how to make those well, decisions. What would happen in today in such an earthquake? You think a sim the similar reactions would happen? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it happens all the time, you know, and, yeah, and that was something I mean. that uh, that was, you know, I, I actually called the, you know, I'll admit, like I called the same sociologist that I was talking to, you know, while I was working mm -hmm. on the book and just said like, I'm I'm a little worried, you know, like in the time that I've been working on this book, America's become so yeah. polarized. Like, yeah. can we say that we're sure this is going to happen again? And mm -hmm. uh, and they were very confident. And I think that the, the the important distinction to make is what I'm writing about in the book in these first three days is is what the you know they call it the emergency period. It's when it's when there's there are these immediate problems to solve right in front of you. Mm -hmm. And of mm -hmm. course in those situations get the people out of the yeah, landslide. Yeah. Get the get you this, know, this turn, kid turn who's, off the gas. Yeah, this kid turn, who's yeah. gonna freeze to death, you know, go grab her and, and wrap her up in a blanket and bring her inside. You know, those those kinds of things are human things and, and we're always gonna mm -hmm. rush to solve them. And it's right. when you start dealing with the kind of phase that people are trying to jump to for us right now, where there's policy decisions that need to be made. And um, that's when the divisions seem to come back. Um, right. But but there is, I mean, I don't know. I think that it's, it's, it's worth dwelling on that kind of beautiful window that opens up when these disasters happen. Um, right. because it shows us, you know, that it's possible. It reminds us that like... Give us another example. We need a hopeful thing. Give us another yeah. example of something that happened there. Sure, yeah. I mean, you know, one thing that I thought was was great was um, there was this guy at the at the um, who worked for the city in a very kind of low position in the public works department. And he ended up, you know, as right after the quake, you know, you got all these people kind of running in and they're, they're volunteers and stuff. 
And he ended up, uh, he looked around and he said, like, why are all these people standing around? No one's giving them anything to do, you know? And he, uh, he, he basically, by the end of the weekend, he'd invented this whole response unit he called disaster control. And they were sending, you know, you had Alaskans showing up, you know, Alaskans, when they come to help, they come with their own, you know, bulldozers or their own gravel mm-hmm. trucks too, right? right so, yeah. um, so he was basically just made a shadow public works department, you know, based of the citizenry. And these guys were going all around town. And then that eventually spun off into a, uh, people doing uh, salvage work. So then you had hundreds of people, a lot of them uh, teenagers, all organized by this uh, veterinarian of all people who were going through some of the hardest hit areas and just, you know, digging out people's uh, China that survived or, you know, whatever it was in these shattered homes. And all the way up to like, finally, they're getting more heavy equipment. They're pulling pianos out of the houses and they're pulling cars out of the garages that have fallen down these cliffs, you know? So all of that energy that um, was just dialed up and, and just attacked whatever problem it could find, you know, everyone found that they had a skill that could be applied to some part. It was so overwhelming sure. of, of, a, What's your of skill? chaos that, that there was some way that everyone could latch onto it and make a difference. And you see that now, too. I mean, like, you know, people sewing masks is like we take that for yeah. granted now, right? But it's like yeah. somebody realized that, you know, that's that's a skill they could bring to it. So, yeah, right. it's a little harder to see than the than the woman, you know, hanging out her car window screaming at people sometimes. But it, yeah. it's always there. Yeah, she's a she's a winner. Um, it's interesting because when you think about what disaster does, there's also a certain, um, especially in the earthquakes, that picture of the um, the twelve foot gap is just riveting. It's a rivet. It sort of gives you pause. It's like whoa, that's it's it's almost it's not beautiful, but it is beautiful. It's tragically beautiful. Um, I was in Hawaii a couple months, maybe six months ago, and they had had the floods out in uh, Hanalei. And this one house that I remember being so beautiful, it's my favorite house, was on its side, just just shifted. It was gone, but it was somewhat beautiful in its own, you know, there, I don't want to say disaster is beautiful, but there is something to like how you pick up and how you return from seeing everything, like in this country right now, seeing everything go away. How do you decide what like America 2.0 is going to be. Yeah, like, I think what does that mean? It gives you an opportunity to imagine something fresh. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, that's, you know, I had this sort of weird experience. You were asking me what it was like to look in these um, boxes and listen to these tapes, you know? And I think that it's like, you know, in some ways it's very depressing to spend, you know, spend a week in a, a basement. Yeah, you talked look, about that. Yeah, yeah, you know, looking at these at these boxes and you just see like, oh, this is what it, what's left of a life, you know? It's just all yeah. the best. And then, you know, I had this weird experience where, you know, one of the threads of the story is, is uh, this community theater group in Anchorage. It's like completely almost like a waiting for Guffman type of situation. And they're doing yeah. the play Our Town that we can. So I started reading that play eventually. And I, Great play. Yeah. And I didn't know anything about it. You know, I think I, I must have read it no. in high school and thought it was, you know, kind of hokey or something. you. Right. Yeah. Well, I didn't know the quake and Our Town. So. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, but there's this, you know, you know, there's this character in the play called the stage manager who just walks around the stage and He's as the characters are talking, he'll just turn and say, "See that? See that kid delivering newspapers? He's going to go to war in a couple of years and die." And I was yeah. realizing that I had that ability. Yeah, you know, I had that kind of omniscience. Right. And I think that that's sort of what disaster does. Because you knew what happened, and they didn't. Yeah, I knew. I knew these people that I was, you know, spending all my time trying to reconstruct what they'd done for three days. I also knew right. you know, that they were going to be in a plane crash a month later, or they were going to have a stroke, or whatever it was. And and that's, I think, that's a perspective that disaster gives you too is that you you yeah. suddenly are like aware you know the of, end of the story well yeah and you're aware of like how how fragile it all is but also mm-hmm. how precious and you're sort of locked into you know all these things that 
we we would walk around taking for granted. But you're saying like suddenly, you know, there's a beauty to things. There's this veneer over things where you're like, oh, like if only, you know, I I, I knew if only I was in touch with this kind of, uh, you know, the richness of life, you know. In, yeah, in, at other well, times. that's the famous quote from that play. By, by the way, it's a play by Thornton Wilder. It's very famous. And the big line at the end is when one of the characters has died and is at the funerals and they're all sort of going through their lives and and she's seeing them from outside. And she goes, do any human beings ever realize life while they live it every, every minute? And that nobody, I think, oh, Earth, you're too wonderful to realize you. There's all kinds of great quotes in that play about that is the ephemerality of life and also the lack of appreciation for it while living it. It's it's a really interesting play to use. That was an interesting point. We're going to talk about that when we get back, this idea of storytelling and what knowing the ending. And I think one of the things that I loved about was your, one of your pieces was the idea of that, of, of what happens to storytelling. We're here with John Muallen, a wonderful writer, whose new book is called This is Chance, The Shaking of an All-American City, a, a voice that held it together. We'll be right back. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. We're here with John Muallam. His new book is called This is Chance. It's about uh, a 1964 Alaskan earthquake, which happened in Anchorage. And one of the things we're talking about is storytelling. Now, for those who don't know John, he's a wonderful storyteller. He's just, I, I, I remember your piece at um, Pop-Up Magazine where you're talking about your kids um, doing a play at school, which was wonderful. Like you tell wonderful stories like that. It made me laugh so much. Um, doing a play in Berkeley, right? It was, well, it, was in, it was in San Francisco, yeah. The music, it was a kid's musical about gentrification. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It made me laugh so hard. It was so perfect. But talk a little bit about storytelling, because there, there was a part you were talking about, this idea of seeing you were in this attic looking through these boxes, and this is this woman's life. This is her whole life in a box. And you you sort of had these, everyone has these moments of, I, I'm particularly obsessed with death, but that's just me. Um, not obsessed, focused. Um and and one of the things that's important is this idea of what the story is and where it is. Can you talk a little bit about how you you do wonderful storytelling? You did one on the on the um, the wildfires in California that I think stands out as my favorite piece about a terrible situation where you were up. Um, uh, what was the part of uh, I'm blanking paradise. on the, paradise? Yes. Right, exactly. And you did that for the New York Times Magazine. Um, talk about storytelling now, because people, again, are twitchy, they're, but they still love stories, the, the idea of a story and, and the ephemerality of, of things. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's right. You know, there's a, there's a lot. I mean, I've been writing for the Times Magazine since uh, 2005, right? And I remember even mm -hmm. when, I, when I started, you know, I was just in my early 20s and I had, you know, mentors of mine, you know, writers that I admired being like, basically telling me like, you know, it's all over, kid. Like the days of these, you know, big magazine <laughs> budgets are over and good luck, you know? That is and, true. And there's, yeah. But there's always been this feeling, like as long as I've been doing this work, that it's sort of, it doesn't matter anymore. You know, that, that it's, people are too, even then it was like the narrative was people are too sped up. No one can sit down and read, you know, 10,000 words about something. And I think honestly, like, I mean, I'm fortunate enough to write for a place like the Times Magazine that has a big audience and has, you know, weathered all that. But I think the reality is that the people are reading those things, you know, and and even when you look at the at the numbers, I think it's it holds up. But and I think it's because of sort of what we were just talking about is that you know uh, a book or or a, a long magazine feature it gives you an opportunity 
to get information in a completely different way, in a way that sort of more nurtures you than than um, disorients you, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it, it's it's a chance to feel things, right? It's a space that in which you can think through things on your own. You know, a good a good magazine story or a good book is is not just telling you what what's what and what to think about it, but it's leading you toward those feelings, right? It's leading you toward those those epiphanies. So how how have you changed uh, your storytelling? To, I mean, because I do think there's something very base and lizard about storytelling for people. And, you know, you do that around the fire versus now, but there have been changes in how you tell a story and and what people expect. I I am always, whenever people say young people don't do this, I'm always like, they like a good story. I'm sorry. That doesn't change at all, no matter what the medium is. But, but there are changes in medium. You've you, you told that story, you know, in a, in a, in a sort of a speaking way at, uh, on pop-up magazine, which was a different way of doing a story, but talk about the ways stories have changed or how you think about it, or is it the same thing for you? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I think I'm just, my, my job as I see it is always just to kind of tell the best, the best story that I can. And, and um, so like, I'm sort of on my own like evolution, I guess, of just trying to get better and better at my craft. But I think it's true that, you know, the, there are, there are like so many different ways to tell a story now that didn't even exist in the 15 years that I've been doing. I mean, I've done these projects. This, this book actually started with a project that I did a collaboration with some musicians, members of this band, the Decemberists, who I've done a couple projects with, where we do these shows where I'm, I'm telling a story, you know, a reported story, and they're, uh, they've written kind of a score to it so, so that they're on stage playing with me. So yeah, that that will tweak the way, you know, if you're if you're standing on a stage telling a story as opposed to writing it, there's just mechanical things you have to do differently. You know, you got to watch how long your sentences are and how how many turns they're taking, things like that. But I think ultimately what I've learned in the time that I've been doing it is is sort of what you were saying is that the closer you can get to that feeling of just sitting around a campfire and telling a story, uh, the more it's going to resonate with people. And and I think there was a kind of a magazine piece that that I often found myself doing uh, when I was starting that was kind of like, um, you know, like an intellectual kind of exploration of something and, uh, you know, kind of like looking at things from different angles. And and I, I think there's still value in that. But I think that I found like that garlic the entire. Yeah, like that's sort of the, the classic New Yorker, you know, kind of story, yeah. too, of like, you know, let's do 15,000 words about, you know, wheat or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I did I did some stuff like that. And it was all very gratifying. But I think it you just quickly realize that that hits people in a very different place. Then that paradise story, for example, that you're talking about with the fire was very much just about one woman's experience and just mm-hmm. following her through that through that day. And for me, I don't know. I guess I've never really thought about it, but maybe subconsciously, I've I've just kind of made the calculation that that's where I can be most valuable, given like where the the journalism ecosystem is at, because you can get a lot of that intellectual delight from just clicking around the internet uh, all day, mm-hmm. and you don't necessarily need the that long narrative. I don't think. Um, in the way that you can hunker down with a with a long story ab- about people. So, do you have an information diet that you have? Do you wh- wh- when you're trying to get your stories out? You, do you tweet? Do you how do you look at that? Do you think it's a, a a problem in the way you tell stories or an asset? You do you mean how I like promote yeah. the stories? No, no. Oh. In your in, ter- in terms of how you write, like what when you think about how people are consuming it. Do you think a lot about that? I've never thought more about how people consume things than... No, no. And I'm not, I'm not saying that's good. I mean, maybe that's, maybe I'd be a lot more successful if I, if I did. I kind of just, I always just take this approach where it's like, I'm, I'm labor and like the, I'm writing for management, you know, and like (laughs) management can can get the story out in whatever format they want. If they want to do some cool online thing, like that'd be great. And maybe I'll have some input on it, but like I just feel like I can only control like what I write and how I how I tell the story. 
and I just rely on, um, you know, other folks to figure out how to get Kindness people to read it. strangers. Yeah, right, right. Well, I, I require, I rely on the, on the people who are, who are good at the like engagement stuff to, to figure that end, end out. But, um, and, yeah. and I, I'm going to ask you some technical, so sure. writing a book right when this happens, how are you doing that? Because more and more, a lot of book promotion has gone online. It has gone, you know, you know, I, when I had my first book 100 and 300 years ago, in the mid nineties, we, I went all over the country, like 30 cities. Everyone's like, what? Like, and it was a small book. It wasn't even that big a book and went to bookstores and went to places. And it just was very extensive. Even the second one, which was just a few years later, was the same. How do you promote a book in the middle of coronavirus or, or blank? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, here I am sitting in front of my tomato yeah. plants. Uh, talking, talking right. to you. I mean, yeah, nice. this was, and this was sort of a, a you know, this book, um, I mean, I really did feel like, you know, I was getting a lot of signals from the publisher, like, you know, okay, like, let's really put some energy behind this. And it, it felt like it, you know, could have a commercial appeal in the mm -hmm. way that some other things I've written haven't. And so there was, you know, a, a, a quite a large tour, at least in my sense of things uh, that was scheduled. Mm -hmm. and, that, and that's all, that's all gone. I mean, I think the weird thing is, is that, you know, there's a way in which the book really is about these kind of moments when reality is just completely rewritten for us and, and, mm -hmm. you know, life becomes, you know, thrown into some unimaginable other realm. And so that's kind of where we're at. And so in some ways it's like people are, there's media that's, you know, wanting to talk to me about the book that probably wouldn't have otherwise, but I don't know, you know, like I, I don't, I mean, maybe this is a little too, <laughs> uh, it's, I'm not sure this makes me look too good, but like, I just had the realization the other day is like the book's been out three weeks how humiliating for me that like, you know, necessarily because this book is out, I, I am very preoccupied with myself, you know, and I'm like mm -hmm. looking online to see, you know, yeah. who's saying nice things <laughs> about okay. me today, you know, okay. and, uh, and that's worry. just what it is to have a book out. You know, I worked on this book for six years and I just thought, what a, what a weird juxtaposition. You between... worked on it for six. Okay. Yeah, so it's, it's like, right. no, no, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not beating myself up about it. I'm just like, what a, it's just a fascinating predicament been when like the world is really, there's so much suffering in the world right now. And there, you know, there's so much of my my mind that's preoccupied with, you know, this sort of like, you know, thing that that is, uh, you know, important to me, and I'm I'm not going to disown that. But yeah, uh, you but, know, John, there's suffering all the time in the world. I we guess just that, are noticing. I guess that's true. I guess that's true. Yeah. To some extent, um, what's interesting, I do have people when I tweet things. I happen to have a large Twitter following. Uh, I get notes from everyone I tweet about now who has books or articles. They're like, "Thank you," and I'm like, "Really? All right, okay." It's just I found it interesting. So let's finish up. Finish talking about the book because I, I think people should read this book. It's a wonderful story. Um, you know, there's the bigger picture and then there's just the story. This is, this is, these are a couple of people. I would love you to give me a sense of what you think the bigger idea is here of what this reporter did um, and what you think from your perspective, the most important part of it. To me, it's this idea of community and trust, which I think we all are desperate for again. And I think we, I don't think we, I think we lose and win it constantly. Like we go between the two of being sort of a disaster zone and also finding pockets of real heroism and, and courage all over the place. So from your perspective, what were you, what do you think the big thing you want readers to take away from this? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's really well put. And yeah, for me, I think it was, you know, the, the earthquake, uh, like this situation now is just really one of those moments where you are awakened to the volatility of, of ordinary life in a way that you don't walk around thinking about the impermanence of things all the time and, and how fragile it is. And then what you see in, in this situation, you know, this catastrophic situation, is uh, the way that people come together and through their connectedness can kind of withstand that turbulence. And to me, that's, that's what the book is about. You know, it's about that, 
you know, we can't deny the the chaos of the world and, and we have to prepare for it. But even when we prepare for it, we can't even still imagine it. So when when those things happen, when we feel that upheaval, when we feel life as we know it being overturned, the best we can really do is just is just latch on to each other and and you know, almost like a like a physical object, just make ourselves stronger um so that we don't get thrown over. And uh yeah, that that to me is it. It's just that that we have this force for counteracting chaos. And it's just it's just that feeling of connectedness. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things, and Anchorage is there now and everything, you couldn't tell where that 12-foot drop was. Yeah, of course. How, how did they fix that? They actually just, it's it's actually, it's really funny because you wouldn't know, and but when you're standing there, they, they just um, filled it in and they have a, a big slope that leads down to a parking lot. So those buildings are back where they, you know, new versions of them are back where they used to be. Mm -hmm. um, they just filled it in. They just filled it right in and made a parking lot. It's the most American way to deal with a, a problem, I think. Yeah, <laughs> that's perfect. That's, uh, 12 foot, you know, it's so funny you say that because you see my tattoos. I can't, you can see, you can't see them on thing, but it's centropy and entropy. Oh, yeah. My tattoos. yeah, yeah. So I think about it all the time. Yeah, me too. That's why I, I love your book. Some of us are programmed to, to think about uh, everything falling apart, I guess. And build, being built. Yeah. I'm sorry. I was there. Entropy. I was focusing there's, on the bad part. Pair. Yeah, <laughs> you're pairing on entropy, which leads to centropy. Right. This is why. This is what you have to do. Anyway, I really appreciate it. I recommend everybody read this book. It's a wonderful book to read now. It has a lot of resonance now, and it's just a good story. Um, and John is a beautiful, beautiful writer, one of my favorites. Um, and I highly recommend this book and anything John writes, actually. What are you working on next? Uh, I'm working on educating my children at home. That is going to be a story, isn't it? Uh, I, isn't um, it? I don't know. I think oh, I'd have to be on. doing a little bit better to want to write about it. But uh, it's yeah. just, it's, yeah. you're going to have to give up for a few months. No, I, I my son was just doing Spanish, and I'm like, I'm just going to. Yeah, give up we're on focusing this. on our philosophy is that they may not be learning, but as long as they're growing. So we're, we're focused on growth right yeah, now. I was yeah. like, go play video. It's, yeah. fine. it's whatever. <laughs> it's just we're going to have to take this one for the team. Anyway, thank you for coming on the show, John. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. John, where can people find you and the book online? Uh, well, I'm on Twitter at Jay Moallen. Um, and then my website has all the information you could want about the book, johnmoallen.com. Great. And if you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap a link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Special thanks to Squadcast.fm. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then.